Open your Bible tonight to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. Beginning in verse 4. God's Word says that love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Beloved, this morning or this evening, as we come again to God's Word, clearly we're going to continue our thoughts about the topic of love from the Bible. And I must confess that as we come to this subject, to preach it and teach it is far easier than it is to consistently practice it, to do it. Yet, none of us can use that as an excuse because we also know that love is a fruit of the Spirit. We know that by God's grace, we can all as believers walk by the Spirit. Thus, we all have... By God's grace, the ability to be able to do what it is that God's word is calling on us to do. So tonight we want to continue to consider together how it is that we can be loving as God's people. We're going to continue tonight looking at this list of vices that I mentioned to you last week that Paul says are not compatible with love, with biblical love. We looked at three of the vices last week together. That love is not compatible with jealousy. Love is not compatible with boasting, with bragging. And love is not compatible with arrogance. And as we looked at those three last time together, we even went back and walk through the book of 1 Corinthians and even a little bit over into 2 Corinthians to see where there was already boasting and, and bragging and arrogance and jealousy that was there in the church at Corinth. And so Paul knew that this was a problem. Paul knew that this was a church, as he even says in the opening chapter, that they had been so enriched by God that they had been blessed with every spiritual gift. I mean, this was a church that had some amazing teachers, some amazing preachers that had come through there. They had folks that had all kinds of spiritual gifts that should have been used for the body of Christ. But the one thing they seemed to be deficient in, or one of the main things they were deficient in was love. Love was the thing that just wasn't there as it should have been. And that's why Paul is addressing, even in this context as we've looked at in chapter 12, where he's speaking about their using of the spiritual gifts. And he's saying, look, it is wonderful for you to desire these things. And yet the, the more excellent way is that you use the gifts that God has given you do it in love. Because if there is no love, then the, the effect that it can have is missing. And so as we consider this again tonight, 
Examine your own heart before the Lord to see where it is that He wants to address in your heart where maybe love is lacking somewhat. And the first area we'll look at tonight as we go back to God's Word, beginning in verse 5, is this area of acting unbecomingly. He says, love does not act unbecomingly. Quite simply, beloved, what he means by that is that it is not to be rude. It is not to be disrespectful. It is not to live in such a way that you demonstrate that you have an unconcern for the feelings of others. That out of love we are to treat people, all people, with dignity, all people with respect, as someone who is made in the image of God, no matter their social status, even no matter their race. It reminded me of what Jesus said over in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 31, he says, treat others the same way you would want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And by sinners there, he's talking about unbelievers. He's saying, look, The way we love should be different than the way the unbelieving world loves. There should be something different about the way we love. If all we do is love those who love us, we're not doing anything different than what they can do to a certain extent. If we just do good to those who do good to us, then we're acting just like them. Our love is supposed to rise above that. This is what he's saying. Don't act unbecomingly there in 1 Corinthians In chapter 13, that is, don't be rude, disrespectful. Brother, when you think about it, you can consider your own heart, and maybe there's conviction in your heart as there's conviction in my heart when I think about this very topic, this very subject. That maybe you find yourself in certain situations where you're you're willing to let your guard down and be rude, to act unbecomingly towards others. And when you do that, and when I do that, what God is helping me to think through about this is to remember, even in line with what we were talking about this morning, there's something bigger at stake. Whatever it is that someone has done to where I'm thinking I have the right to act unbecomingly towards them, I need to remember, one, that's not love, and two, there's something bigger at stake, and what's bigger at stake is the gospel, is their soul or their sanctification. That's what's at stake. It's hard to turn to win someone to Christ after we've been rude and ugly towards them. And that's way more important than your rights and my rights as we think about that as God's people. So Paul here says, as we look back at 1 Corinthians 13, that love does not act unbecomingly. But secondly, notice he says, it does not seek its own. It does not seek its own. Here he's addressing addressing the issue of selfishness in our heart. But even that idea of seeking your own is the idea of taking advantage of your position, maybe your position with others, to be more concerned with our rights our own rights instead of being concerned about others. 
I came across a quote from a tombstone that said, quote, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cares for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Because this was a man that had sought his own. Brother, I want us to think about that tonight a little more carefully. I want us to see how this can manifest itself in our life. If you stay in 1 Corinthians for a moment, go back to, go back to, to chapter 8. Go back to chapter 8. We came to this passage last week when we were talking about one of the ways that the church at Corinth was becoming arrogant is in the area of knowledge. Where he says knowledge can actually make someone arrogant. And that is when someone has a knowledge about things that are true and right. Their thinking about God's word on a particular subject is right. That's the context here in chapter 8. And he says, but if that person has that knowledge, but then uses that knowledge in a way that they're not concerned with how it affects other people, then he's saying they're not acting in love. And he says, love seeks to edify people. Just pure knowledge seeks to satisfy yourself. Live for yourself. But what we have to have together is knowledge and love. And when we put knowledge and love together, that's what helps to bring edification. That's what helps to bring strengthening in the body of Christ. Here in chapter 8, the knowledge here is referred to in verse 4, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. We know. So here's the knowledge he's talking about in this specific situation. We know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, and, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things, and we exist through him. So notice he's talking to people who have this knowledge. They have a right understanding about God. They have a right understanding about idols. They know there's no such thing as as idols in that sense. However, he says in verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. It's not the issue of whether or not someone could have been eating this food. That in itself was neutral. There wasn't, it wasn't a sin to eat it, and it wasn't a sin not to eat it. You had liberty in Christ to eat it, especially if you had knowledge and you understood, understood when you sat down to eat, this is in a public venue, and you sat down to eat. And you knew that because of the way the customs were of that day, you knew there was a good chance that food that that you're eating somehow in some way had actually been a part of some type of sacrificial service towards idols. But you know there's no such thing as idols. You know you're not worshiping idols. You're just sitting down to have a good ribeye steak. You're just wanting to enjoy a good meal. 
And he's saying there's nothing wrong with that, but he says, be careful there in verse 9 to take care that your liberty that you have does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, and this is where he's speaking about, just using your knowledge for yourself instead of using your knowledge out of love to edify others. And this goes back to our point of not seeking your own. He says it's through your knowledge. He who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Here it is again, beloved. Tie it in with what we were talking about this morning with the Apostle Paul. His life was consumed with the cause of Christ. That's why when Paul looked at his circumstances, as we looked at again this morning, what do we see with Paul? Paul's in a prison and he's rejoicing. How can he be rejoicing in the midst of sitting in a prison where he's chained to a, a Roman soldier there in the imperial guard? He's chained to him 24 hours a day. He's never allowed any time to himself. How could he be rejoicing at that? He was rejoicing at that because he knew the gospel was advancing. It was advancing among those soldiers. It was advancing here in Rome. People were being saved. And not only that, people that were already saved were growing in their strength to go out and proclaim the gospel. This is why I hear Paul is saying, look, I am willing never to sit down. In this context, what he's talking about here, he's saying, look, I'm willing to never ever again go to that restaurant, sit down there and eat a steak because I know it may cause my brother to sin. If it's going to cause my brother to sin, I, I don't have to eat a steak. I can stay out of that place. I don't have to do that. Why? Because of his love. What Paul was saying, I am not seeking my own. I'm seeking the edification of others. This is a part of this not seeking your own. Look over in chapter 10 for a moment. In chapter 8, he was dealing with a public setting. In chapter 10, he deals with a private setting. And he's dealing with your freedoms in Christ. But he's still saying, use your life, use your liberties, use what you have for the sake of others. Verse 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. There it is, same principle we saw back in chapter 8. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Here's the context, verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking any questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, that is they invite you to their house and you decide to go, 
He says, look, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, as you read through this, for conscience sake, it's not talking about his own personal conscience. He's thinking about the conscience of a fellow brother or sister in Christ that is there with him. That may have a weak conscience when it comes to this. And he says, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So what, what, what's the context? He's saying you're sitting down at a meal in the privacy of someone's home in this context. And there is, they're, they're serving this wonderful meal there. And, and all of a sudden the, the weaker brother who's there with you is sitting there. And he becomes aware that this food was offered up to an idol. And now his conscience is ringing. And he just can't, he doesn't have that knowledge that we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And now he's bothered by that. And what does Paul actually say to do? He says, then don't eat it. That is, at this point, you have to offend the unbeliever so as not to offend the believer because your love is for him not to seek your own. You're seeking his edification, her edification. You're not seeking your own good, but that of your neighbor. That's why it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, just do it all for the glory of God. Verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as also I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Paul recognized in that setting that his showing love and deference towards his fellow brother in Christ in that situation would be a powerful testimony to that unbeliever to let him know, look, I am willing to deny myself this on his behalf. Because this is what we as Christians do. I'm looking out for him. I love him. I'm willing to do what's good for him instead of what's good for me. I'm looking at what's profitable for him. This is why the world needs to see again that we are different. That we are different. Paul spoke about these kind of things. Go back to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Go back to chapter 9 for a moment. Where Paul had some rights and he was willing to deny those rights. And he did it for the sake of the gospel. In verse 18 he says, For what is what then is my reward that when I preach the gospel I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. But though I'm free and I'm free from all men I make myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Paul was just consumed about seeking the good of others. And obviously the ultimate good for anyone in this world is for them to know Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And Paul was consumed with that. He picks this topic back up over in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this very carefully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, beginning in verse 11, he says, Have I become foolish? You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. 
Here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you, for your children, are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urge Titus to go and send his brother, the brother with him. Titus, do not take advantage of you. Did he? No. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Paul is saying, look. When we were with you, when I was with you, I didn't take advantage of you. When Titus came to you, he didn't take advantage of you. We both walked in the same spirit. We were both looking to be spent for you. Our life was about you. This is what he's speaking about. This is what true love is. True love says, I am not seeking my own here. I am seeking what's best for you. Now, beloved, when the church body has that going on, You want to talk about a bond that can't be broken. If everybody is walking around and living in such a way that says, I am more about you than I'm about me. It's not about my rights, it's about you. It's not about what's good for me, it's about what's good for you. I'm living as much for you as I am for me. This is what Paul is speaking about here. Go over for just a moment to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We could take it all the way back to the Romans chapter 14 because 14 really flows into 15 as far as the, the subject at hand. <coughs> Excuse me. Where he's talking about how the weaker brothers and the stronger brothers in Christ are to live pursuing peace, not wanting to tear each other down with using their, again, their freedoms in Christ. But notice what he says, pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying that You are to live in such a way that you're wanting to be pleasing to your neighbor that is for their good. You're living for their good, for their edification. And when you think about for their good, again, you're thinking about their edification. That is, they're growing in their faith. They're growing in their understanding of the word of God. They're growing in Christ-likeness. This is what you're living for. You're... Not to please just ourselves. And maybe another way to think about that is this way. Is that what should actually bring us the most pleasure is your good. I should be more pleased and satisfied with your growth than I am having my own way. This is where Paul is saying do not seek your own. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at the last two vices we see here in verse 5. 
Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. And then thirdly, he says, it's not provoked. There's nothing revolutionary for me to share about this. When he says provoked, it's just basically saying, speaking about someone who is just easily irritated. To easily be angered. Maybe like Moses became angered over in the book of Numbers in chapter 20. He became angered with the people whenever God came to him and, and, and told him to go, remember, and to speak to the rock and to make the water come out. But Moses in his anger hit the rock, speaking to the people in a, even a harsh way at that time. As God's word tells us in the book of Ephesians and Ephesians 4, 2, that we are to walk worthy of our calling. And as we do that, we're to walk in gentleness and humility and in patience and in tolerance for one another in love. Beloved, as you think about this idea of being irritated, ask yourself this question. Are there certain things that you do that you know just irritate the fire out of other people? And what is it that so easily irritates us? Why is that? What what is it that I am so wanting at a time when I'm so easily irritated? When I'm so easily provoked? Now there is a good way in which we should be provoked. If you remember when Paul walked through the streets of Athens, he was provoked. His spirit was provoked. It was stirred because he saw all of the false religions, all of the statues around there. He saw God being dishonored and this provoked him. We should be provoked in that sense over sin and the dishonoring of God. But obviously that's not what Paul is saying here when he says love is not provoked. Love is willing to be tolerant, slow to anger, quick to listen. And slow to speak. God's word calls on us to be those who are not easily irritated. Do not seek their own. Do not act unbecomingly. But let me share this one last one tonight. Notice again in verse 5, if you will, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now notice something here very carefully. Paul acknowledges that at times we will be wronged. At times you will be wronged. The question here when it comes to love is how we handle that. How do we handle it when we are wronged, when we suffer wrong? Notice what he says. It says that love does not take it into account. What's he talking about there? Well, that's a bookkeeping term where he's talking about someone who itemizes a list on a ledger, keeps an exact account of what's come in and what's gone out. In this case, the person is keeping a running account, an exact list of things that have been said and things that have been done to them. That was wrong. And they're keeping a permanent record. A permanent record whereby, when necessary, they bring it back up. 
They bring it back to your attention. Or you bring it back to their attention. This is what he means by taking something into account. Now again, he's not saying, the Bible speaks in other places, that if someone sins against you, that you are to confront them about that. They, they are to come to true repentance about that, seeking forgiveness of it. But here saying that what love does is, is when that person has sought repentance and they have confessed that before you, whatever it is that they've done, if you grant forgiveness, now understand when you grant forgiveness to someone, what you have said when you grant that forgiveness is, I will not bring this back up to you again. This is no longer on the radar. This is no longer an issue. I have forgiven you. You've confessed it. You've repented of it. You've borne fruit that shows that you've repented of it. I am now willing to now not hold that against you. But what we tend to do, when, and this is where he's saying don't take things into account, is that sometimes that we want to hold on to things. We want to nurse things that are there. We want to hold on to that list. And all of a sudden you're in a conversation Maybe you're in a conversation with your husband or your wife or your, 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 your son or your daughter or someone that you know and you love and you're dear with and, and you're in a conversation and the next thing you know, something's brought up that happened three years ago. Like, where is that coming from? It's because someone has taken it into account. This is what Paul is addressing here. And just as an example, beloved, just remember when we struggle with that, remember what God's word says in regards to God's taking into account for us. Listen carefully to this. You don't need to turn there. Romans 4, 8, quoting from David out of the Old Testament, it says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And the reason why he won't take it into account is because those sins were nailed on the cross. Jesus was taking our trespasses upon himself. Think about the life of Jesus. When we struggle to take things into account, think about Jesus. Let's go to Jesus and the thief on the cross. This is a man. Here's Jesus suffering, I mean physically, suffering spiritually. I mean, he is suffering on this cross and there is a man to his side that is mocking him, that is cursing him, that is just spitting at him, that just is shaming him and insulting him with all the insults in the world. But as that man sits there and he watches Jesus, and though he's, Jesus is receiving all these reviling words from below and, and people spitting at him and, and people mocking him and, and calling him all kinds of names and things that are going on, as this man who was in the middle of doing that, as he watches Jesus and how Jesus handles this, God quickens this man's heart. And this man is converted right there on the cross. And he comes to know Jesus for who Jesus really was. And he calls out to Jesus, basically saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. Don't forgive me. And Jesus didn't take it into account. I mean, Jesus could have easily have said, 
like many of us would have said, most likely even I would have said, if somebody was sitting there, if you're sitting here tonight, you're just cursing me and insulting me and shaming me and, and spitting at me and throwing things at me and doing all this, and then all of a sudden you walk up and say, will you forgive me? Let me think about it. But Jesus didn't think about it. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise, which meant I've already forgiven you. I don't take that into account. It's as though now for me, you never said it. You never did it. He cleansed this man. Think about the family of Jesus. When you read through the gospel accounts, it's always been interesting to me that when it came to the siblings of Jesus, that they didn't believe in him. Not during the gospel accounts. In fact, they thought he was out of his mind. If you call over in the gospel of John, John chapter 7 and verse 5, when Jesus was not willing to walk out in public because he knew that there were those who were trying to kill him, his brothers were coming by and saying, go on out there in public. Show them what you can do. You want all the attention, go on out there and show them. Show them what you can do, Jesus. And yet, when we look towards the end of our Bible, we find one of those half-brothers, the brother of James, referring to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to know him for who he was. And guess what? Jesus didn't hold that against him. Jesus didn't take into account all the things he had said and done to him all of his life. I think about the Apostle Paul as we read about his testimony this morning from 1 Timothy. And what is, when Jesus comes to Paul, he was Saul at that time in the book of Acts and he's on that road to Damascus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was doing this towards Jesus. Saul hated Jesus. He hated him with a passion. He was thankful that Jesus was dead and Jesus was off the scene. He couldn't stand the name of Jesus. He didn't want anybody mentioning the name of Jesus. And though here he was, a man who had this kind of hatred in his heart, when God saved him, when he came to God and he came to understand what it was he was doing, guess what? Jesus forgave him. And Jesus didn't keep bringing it back up to him. He didn't keep bringing it back up to him saying, Saul, don't you remember what you used to do? Don't you remember how you used to treat my people? He never did that. Beloved, think about your own life. And every sinner who's ever repented and put their faith in Christ, that if you're one of those, you're, as David said, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's the example we look to. As it says in the book of Romans, in Romans 12, we're not to look to take our own revenge. We're not to look to pay back insult for insult. But we're to instead trust that into the hands of God and be those that are willing to demonstrate love. So let me ask you tonight. Always, first and foremost, are you one of the blessed? Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Does the Lord still take your sin into account? Well, 
If you've never truly repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, he still takes your sins into account. Your sins are still on the books. They won't be removed. The only way they're removed is through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the cross of Christ. And you had to put your faith in Christ. But let me ask you tonight also, which of these four maybe do you struggle with the most? Acting rudely? Being selfish? Easily irritated? What about holding grudges? In some ways, these four really go together. Oftentimes, when I'm being selfish, is when I get easily irritated. And then I act rudely. And I can hold it, hold a grudge. And what God's word is telling us tonight, and what it's telling me tonight, is that's not loving. That's not the love of God that's in our hearts. And how I'm supposed to think and act towards others. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer for a moment.